Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, John Edmonds. This month, the Brooklyn Museum had planned to open John Edmonds' A Sidelong Glance, an exhibition of 25 new and recent pictures, including portraits and still lifes of Central and West African sculpture, including works in Brooklyn's own collection, some of which were donated by writers Ralph and Fanny Ellison. Edmonds is the first winner of the UOVO Prize, a new annual exhibition award for an artist living or working in Brooklyn. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the exhibition's opening date is to be determined. It is scheduled to be on view through August 8, 2021. The Brooklyn exhibition was curated by Ashley James and Drew Sawyer. A mural-sized Edmonds, a lesson in looking with reverence, is installed at UOVO's forthcoming storage facility in Bushwick, where it will remain on view into November. Edmonds is also included in Rifts and Relations, African-American artists in the European modernist tradition at the Phillips Collection in Washington. The museum, as you heard on the show a couple weeks ago, the museum, as you heard on the program a couple weeks ago, has extended the exhibition through January 3rd, 2021. Rifts and Relations offers works by African-American artists of the 20th and 21st centuries, alongside works of the European modernists whose work they engaged. The exhibition was curated by Adrienne L. Childs, who was recently on episode number 444. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Dallas-based sculptor Tamara Johnson. But first, thanks again for keeping those five-star ratings and reviews coming on Apple Podcasts and the like. The more we get, the better. And while I'm pointing listeners to good things, look for us to start adding our guests' Instagram accounts to our show pages on manpodcast.com. John Edmonds is on IG at John C. Edmonds. Tamara Johnson is there at Tam Jam Sun. And I'm there too at Tyler Green Books. We'll have all of those on manpodcast.com. John Edmonds, after the break. Around the world, art museums, as community gathering sites, are making difficult decisions in the face of COVID-19. In this new two-part episode of the Getty's Art and Ideas podcast, President Jim Cuno gathers six U.S. museum directors for a candid discussion of the pandemic's effect on their museums. These insightful conversations address a wide range of topics, from the logistical challenges of how to reopen to the role of museums in society. Part one features Max Holine of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, Kaywin Feldman of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., and James Rondo of the Art Institute of Chicago. In part two, hear from Matthew Teitelbaum of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, Ann Philbin of the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, and Timothy Potts of the J. Paul Getty Museum. The Art and Ideas podcast can be found now on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Music. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Ebony G. Patterson, While the Dew is Still on the Roses, featuring the work of artist Ebony G. Patterson, born in Jamaica in 1981. This is the most significant exhibition of the artist's work to date, presented within a new installation environment that evokes a night garden. This exhibition will be on view at the Nasher Museum when it is safe to reopen. The museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the art press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu.
And we're back. John Edmonds, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a picture that's on your website. It's a painting by Jean-Louis Jerome called Bashy Bazook. It's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Was your interest in the picture itself, or was it a way into or a reference to Jerome's infamous orientalizing? Well, that work on the website is kind of used as a reference, both in thinking about my own practice, the different ways in which clothes and items and garments are used to present a narrative about the individual. So, you know, I'm really thinking about that painting in specific in reference and a relationship to my own practice, specifically in thinking about the black male form within that painting. I remember the first time I saw it, I think that was the first time I actually saw that one in the real at the Met. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a striking one for sure. But I think it's really powerful about the painting is the quality of light in it. But then you have all these kind of underlying kind of politics around, as you mentioned, Orientalism and the gaze, you know, and who's, who's looking, who's seeing. So, you know, that, that's really one of the main reasons why that painting stood out to me so much. Another reason I wanted to ask you about it is that the figure's turn is really distinct. His shoulders and his head are not quite aligned. And the effect is that we have caught him mid-turn in a way. His head is not in profile view, but it's not in three-quarter view either. And you and your work in ways that we'll talk about in a minute are, are very specific in particular in how your sitter's heads are are presented. So I wonder if you were interested in how Jerome placed his figure's head relative to his body and indeed the gun behind him. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a very kind of specific kind of stylistic choice that's being that you can see that's being made in that in that particular work. And yes, it's you know the angle itself and, and the way in which he is posed, I think, allows for these different kind of objects of adornment and protection to become even more present. So I see that as well. When you're thinking through a series of pictures, and we'll be talking about specific series in a moment, how do you decide how you want to orient the sitter, whether facing you or facing completely away from you or in three-quarter view or what have you? It's really so dependent upon... I think more than anything, the, the headspace that I, I'm in at that time. I mean, sometimes I want to see the human form and I want to think about the human form less specifically in relationship to the, the individual's identity or who the person is, but more as, as a form to think about surface and texture and light and, and bodies and, and the way in which you know, some of the garments that I've, I've used within my practice, like a, you know, a do-rag or, you know, a hoodie or a bandana, like how, or how I am used to seeing individuals kind of present themselves with, with these different types of, of clothing. So for the most part, for example, when I started the do-rag series, I think it's a really good example. And I had moved to Crown Heights in 2016, and I had continued to see over and over again, these different men and women in public wearing these headpieces and I would always kind of catch them in this moment of walking rapidly past me so I would never really get a glimpse of their face so instead 
I would usually see, you know, just the train of the Durag itself moving in, moving in the wind. So I became really interested in, in that kind of material experience of the Durag and thinking about what does it look like to give that same sense of seeing, you know, this individual walk through, through space like they are, you know, this, this type of kind of supreme being, I think also most of the pictures in the Durag series are, yes, of, of course, as you, as you mentioned, you know, with the sitters facing away from the camera. I also have a few photographs also from that ser- series where there's this kind of casual kind of turn where the subject is slightly kind of profiled to the camera. You can see the kind of contours of the face and contours of the light on the back. And, and it's much more about the human that is underneath the do-rag. But it really starts with thinking about icons and, and, and iconography and how I can use the camera as a way to reinvestigate that, reinvestigate this idea of shape and form and identity and, and lack of identification to bring the, the do-rag itself or the, the object itself that the, the subject is wearing into more of a place of historical significance too, and thinking about the kind of historical implication of head covering and, and, and specifically black people covering their heads and the, the origin of that, right, is, is, is mainly the, the black female figure, the black woman working in, in the fields and protecting one's, one's hair, the politics that they come from, you know, having to present oneself one way and then you know the evolution you look at the evolution of black fashion black style or or blackness um you see this kind of turn to this kind of reclamation or the this kind of edginess of accepting or highlighting or using something to one's kind of advantage to support someone's image something that may have been not celebrated or widely accepted Indeed, you mentioned the, the religious reference, and of course, within religious, many religious practices in the world, men and women often cover their heads. And in the early 2010s, you made a series of portraits that, that were in, informed by religious painting. And there is kind of, there's a palette and a light that, that seems torn from religious painting. Why in the early 2010s were you interested in in religious painting? You're referring mainly to Immaculate. Immaculate, which is a, a picture, we'll have an image on unmanpodcast.com. It's a photograph of a young man uh, with a kind of Torellian, James Torellian blue type background with his hands behind his head. Yes, with a Superman tattoo on his chest. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of a lot of those pictures have kind of a dewy mysticism about them or a dewy religiosity about them. I grew up in a very religious household and I grew up in a Christian Baptist family and you know my mom is from Southern Virginia. She's a Southern woman, so religion and going to church and devotion are all things that are very, very important to her. And I also, as, you know, one of her children, <laughs> those those things also never really became important to me in the same way in, in terms of religious practice, but it did become something very important to me in, in work, and it became religious painting, the iconography of it, and the thematics of certain types of painting, whether it's the Annunciation, right, or 
the Sacred Heart painting, which when I first made this photograph that you're you're referring to, Marcus with the Sacred Heart, creating a play on that same kind of identification of seeing the, the Black male form as a metaphor for love, at least you know, in the time that I was, I was making these photographs, that's how I was thinking of, of those pictures, you know, and, and when I was younger, as a teenager, I always thought it was really interesting in how when you go to museums, there are certain, despite the difference in depicting the Annunciation, right, there's, there's usually kind of three, you know, key elements, right? There's the, the Virgin herself, there is, if there is not a floating figure of some type, there's a, there's a light. There's a sense of, of foreboding. And the, the setting is, is, is usually one that is kind of defined by a, a certain type of locked awayness, you know, or like, you know, there's like someone, you know, she's like this, this, this virgin locked in this room, locked in this space that's been chosen. And, and you know, there's someone's uh, descending telling her, that you are about to give birth to someone who is going to save the world. You know, the really exciting thing about looking at that work is that you see someone employing their own kind of understanding of photography as a type of painting. And in thinking about the relationship between human form and domestic spaces or interior spaces and, and light, and light's presence, yeah, the light in those pictures is is really astonishing. Whether you're indoors or out, and then the relationship between light and color is 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 really striking as well. You you found your subjects for that series out in the world on on the bus or what have you on on public transit, and you've talked before about how when you saw someone you thought might make a good subject, you would make eye contact and give them a little nod, and if they re- and if they reciprocated, you knew you had entree to approach them. Two things about that. First, did you at that point know that that's how Kahinda Wiley was working? I, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, because Wiley, of course, and still sometimes does, would, would just kind of randomly walk up to people on the street, make eye contact in a similar way. And for him, that was a crucial conceptual concept that the people in the pictures were, were, were people he, he didn't know who were welcomed into his studio. So even if you didn't know that he was doing that in, the, in those same years and in the decade before, was the people you didn't know construct, construct fundamental to the work or just a way of finding sitters? <laughs> it was really a way of finding, just finding people. You know, I grew up catching the train and the bus every, everywhere. You know, what I, what I did know about Kende's work is, is that, you know, being from L.A., no one walks anywhere there. You know, I grew up having a very specific way of getting somewhere, using the bus to get to the train to get into the city. You know, I'd always loved people watching, you know, looking at looking at people on, on the train or in the bus. But and it was it was a way for me to think about how to use my time. You know, the picture of Marcus with the Sacred Heart, that is a really key picture because I remember the day that I met him and I had taken the bus from my family's the subway and he was on that same bus these buses very similar to how the buses are you know obviously as you know in in, in new york and these other major cities you know they have this really kind of amplified somewhat royal some somewhat like kind of even tacky kind of like blue 
you know, I, I, I think about that blue also in relationship to like lapis lazuli blue. So this color that, that started out as this really precious color that ended up being the, the color on the interiors of, of many, many buses. And, and to me, every time I see that photograph, that's what I think about. I think about seeing him within on that bus and approaching him and also going to his house several days later and photographing him him in his room you know and and thinking like wow like look at these look at these look at the color of of these these walls it's kind of unreal that you know for me also it's kind of unreal that someone could actually like live you know with (laughs) with with that type of with that type of color (laughs) like like to be very real like someone could live with that but you know i thought that was so fascinating let's pivot to the hoods which are a a fascinating series of photographs all but one of them feature a body wearing a hooded sweatshirt or jacket at pretty close to three-quarter profile shot from behind slash the side we'll come to where you made the pictures and the colors of the hoodies in a moment but first why three-quarter profile for these the silhouette was was really important to me being that each and each photograph you know the, the the sitters for those pictures. They're they're all, and it's a very important subtext. I mean, they're all people that I like. You know, I I met as passerbys and, and working on the street. You know, and and that, at this point, I'm working on the street as if I'm working in a studio. So I have my camera set up. I have my I have my camera set up on my tripod. You know, I have a bunch of hoodies with me for my own wardrobe. I am axing people as they kind of walk by if i can costume them almost costume them as if they were myself you know the the, the hoods of the inception of that work the inception of that work was me thinking about my own physical presence in public space how do i look in public space how how am i how am i seen in in public space and not in not in this not mainly in this kind of social political way but you know how how would it look if you could actually see yourself in 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 black bodies in public space or or bodies hooded bodies or covered bodies in in public space as 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 we know are typically more profiled than than others so the work took on these kind of larger themes around racial profiling and thinking about Jessica Bell Brown, a very good friend of mine who... Curator at the Baltimore Museum of Art, Yale PhD. Yes, yes. Princeton, Princeton PhD. I'm sorry, Princeton, Princeton. Yes, yes. You went to Yale. <laughs> she wrote a, a really in, very beautiful full essay on my on my work for Lightwork, Lightwork Annual Catalog. And she used this really beautiful phrasing. And when she talked about my work as as a means to disentangle perception from reality. And I, and I thought that that was such a beautiful, eloquent way of, of framing, you know, my use of my interest in photography, right? Is that there is this kind of insistent nod to art history or, or, or the way in which photography as a medium has intersected with all of these different mediums, whether it's film or painting or even just like the sculptural nature of the way in which a lot of the bodies are photographed. 
you know, for, for me, the really fascinating thing about, about photography, right. It, it, especially in, in, in how I think of it is, you know, it's like, we're, I'm always starting from a place of introspection or a kind of more kind of meditative place. And I think that in a way there has been a kind of friction always with, despite in how the, the work kind of comes from this kind of interior space, there's a friction of kind of social social consciousness because the work is speaking to kind of larger issues. I mean, it's always, you know, it's bigger than me. Let, let me jump in there for a second because you, you often install these all together and sometimes in public as in, as in Toronto. The colors of the hooded garments are sometimes dark gray or, or black in a way that recalls Trayvon Martin, of course. But there are also within the series white sweatshirts, blue sweatshirts and a blue jacket and a red jacket. Was it important to you to include red, white and blue together within the series? It was important for me to include more of a of a range of, of, of colors. But, you know, red, white and blue, you know, this idea of color and symbolism, that's something that that comes more into play, I think, later on with with the work but that's a great observation it just quite jumps out to me <laughs> there is the trayvon martin associated colors and then the national colors and it seems to me like there's a real intentional tension there there is one picture that is i guess often but not always i'm not sure installed with the group of a young man wearing a green jacket with his hand raised and he is not wearing a hooded garment in the manner the others are why was including him within the series fundamental or necessary or relevant? You know, that picture was really important because symbolically that picture is so emblematic of so many of the the politics that were being addressed very widely on the news. And I'll tell you this, I don't know if, you know, the story behind this picture, but that that photograph in particular, which is entitled Jordan Raising His Hand, that picture is made, you know, in a similar fashion that hoods are made in the sense of how I'm set up in public space and how I'm working on the the street. But the difference in that picture is that, you know, you, you have the the face of the individual and you have this gesture that's happening that seems, I mean, that, that you know, there's a there's a feeling of kind of monumentalness to to the gesture. When I first made that photograph, I met Jordan while I was studying at Yale and I met him and he had this Jordan t-shirt on and I thought that was just so ironic in a way, being that his name is Jordan, he's wearing a Jordan t-shirt. Let me fill in for a quick second. The t-shirt features Jordan's Jumpman logo in which Jordan's arm is raised. He's holding a basketball, but the two gestures kind of speak to each other. And that gesture to me is the Jordan icon itself is such an important kind of like icon, specifically for black male youth culture. Those pictures, you know, despite there being a kind of slipperiness about the the actual identity of the individual, I, I mean, I'm certainly, you know, the work is certainly addressing kind of larger themes around black male youth culture, identity. And I wanted to bring that picture in to kind of speak to both the politics of the the gesture, we're kind of re, you know reclaiming that gesture that at once is very vulnerable is a normal part of commercial and consumerist culture. I think a, a very important thing also to pinpoint you we were talking about color and symbolism attached to color. You know, in that particular picture, 
I remember doing a studio visit with a good friend of mine. You know, they pointed out that, that the colors in that picture in particular are pan-African colors. So the primary colors are red, green, and black again. Let me just fill in for, for listeners. The young man in the picture is wearing black pants. The Jordan logo is red, as is the lettering on the drugstore bag, Walgreens bag he's carrying, and he's wearing a green jacket. You know, from that body work, the next kind of published project was a do-rag. And one of the kind of earlier pictures also in making the do-rags was a, a photograph entitled American Gods, where there are three men donned in do-rags, one red, one green, one black. For me, often, there, there are pictures that are sometimes informed by other artworks, but often they're, you know, my pictures are often influenced by other pictures that I've made, you know. You mentioned color in the do-rags a moment ago, and you brilliantly transitioned us back to that body of work. With the exception of two pictures in the series, they're all pictures of a single person, as we talked about earlier, almost always from behind, but not always from behind. The ones that are shot from behind, the do-rags, the men, presumably men, are wearing are white and black, and then the colors of the three primaries, red, yellow, and blue. Could you talk through the decisions you made regarding color here? When I first moved to, to New York and began making those pictures, you know, you know, I had no money. I started buying these do-rags from the corner store. When I first started making the, the photographs, there, there are some that I made that were in black and white. That was more of an economy of means thing, mainly being that it's it's just much less expensive to shoot black and white 4x5 than it is color 4x5. As I started thinking about color, you know, as you mentioned before, I did start thinking about the primary colors, you know, red, green, yellow. So what, why did you think of the primaries? Well, I think about the primaries because color, for me, has always been a way to think about light. In terms of thinking about primaries, right, and, and light and color, the primaries almost become like these kind of ideals for these kind of, you know, ideals around, I think, beauty. The do-rags aren't the first time you're shooting people from behind or near behind. Obviously, we talked about the hoods, but they are the most direct and persistent in the use of that point of view. I can think of lots of possible precedents from Lorna Simpson and Lyle Ashton Harris, whose work you've discussed before, including with Jessica Bell Brown at the, the National Gallery of Art. There's also, say, Carrie Mae Weems's Jefferson Suite, for example. Were you thinking through any of those people's or other people's work in at that time? This the the idea of the, the the back of the head and that as a theme. I think so many artists, even thinking about back to film, right? Godot and you know this idea of turning away from the camera. You know, I think that so many artists have been really in, in influenced by you know, that particular wave of, of cinema. And the artists that you just mentioned, you know, are, are, all, are all artists that I feel very, very, very much in conversation with. I feel a relationship in, in, in terms of lineage, you know, and think about studying under someone or being in proximity to someone. You took classes with Lorna Simpson, for example. Yes, yes. She was, she was one of my critics when I was in grad school. I was thinking more largely also about the gesture of the back of the head, specifically in that kind of post-conceptual generation and what it represented for many of these artists that were dealing with very frontally and very head-on 
these identity politics in the 80s that were such a different time. You know, there's been a lot of conversation around the back of the head also as a as a gesture to kind of represent a kind of human universality of human form, you know, because of the erasure in a way of a face that it allows the viewer to become more of a part of the the picture plane or the the, the act of looking. When I hit when I came into grad school, how do I make a body of work living in New Haven, Connecticut? And and when I was in, in grad school, you know, I felt a sense of conflict of making the kind of pictures that I had been making to be critiqued every five weeks. And, you know, I, I kind of felt as though there there has to be a way that I can that I have to as as the maker protect my subjects. So you know, really, the, the the back of the head and the, this kind of gesturing to anonymity for me is 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 never a a violent kind of like erasure or gesture. It's what it really is is a is an opportunity to conceal certain aspects of my relationships with certain subjects, which I know that there are you know many artists who are also you know we're we're thinking about that. How do we protect our subjects in working with communities that may be or that are more vulnerable in certain ways. Let's pivot to your tribe series, which is one of my favorite bodies of art of recent years. Is there a first image in this series or is there an image that you generally install to be seen first or or want people to think of and see first or does the series not work that way? So tribe is a subseries in the larger project now. So the Brooklyn Museum show is entitled A Sidelong Glance, which is an, you know, a project in which I am exploring the relationship between human form, the Black body, and African objects. Um, I'll say just, I'll, just to put it broadly, I mean, I say that because there are you know, several parts of, of the work, and there's one in which Tribe, for example, where I'm using these decorative, African decorative sculptures from a, a home. And it's arguable whether or not they are in quotations real or authentic. And then I, I moved to photographing subjects juxtaposed in my own art collection, my own African art collection that I, I began in 2018. And then finally, at least this is where we are right now, the most recent pictures are of Ralph Ellison's African art collection that the Brooklyn Museum has. So there's these three different types of sub-series in this kind of larger project, and Tribe is the beginning of that. You know, for me in Tribe, there are the, for example, Tet de Femme, or Tet de Homme, or the image entitled Modernity. You know, these are the photographs that I think of as a kind of genesis of the project, even though they weren't they were like one of the first. I mean, it's so it's so weird because, you know, also shooting almost everything on negative, you really have no, <laughs> you, you know, you always kind of like lose track of time and where, when something was made. If you don't back, if you don't backlog it immediately, you know, so it all kind of blurs together. But I look at those as the genesis of the project, because, you know, what I am doing with those works in particular, I'm using this iconic form that was the fundament of my understanding of the African art object in the kind of lexicon of visual history. 
I mean, that what really that is really what that 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 Man Ray image is. I think the reason why those pictures are successful and why they cause a certain kind of friction is because it is conjuring something that is firstly a kind of age old problem, but something that is that continues to be a problem now is, you know, our, our understanding and our formation of our education around African art objects and, and how they are actually introduced. So for me, those pictures are are very, very important in actually understanding that. But I think that the, the really amazing thing about those those pictures to me is that again they aren't only about that you know they're they're also about this kind of desire to use the studio space and and studio photography and in lighting you know as as a mechanics of self-constitution you know these are all people when you look at those photographs something that's very important to me and, and it's something that I don't think has has changed throughout the evolution of of my work. The, the the people are really there to to be seen by me. So whenever I I think about the display of my work or the the presentation of my work, and this kind of I think answers for some questions also me had around the 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 earlier projects. I I am very considerate. I, I am very much thinking about my audience, and in the sense that I am letting them into something that that is very much about the relationship between myself and the sitter. Let me raise a specific work and, and, and maybe use that as a way into some of these ideas. The work I want to raise is 2019's Two Spirits, in which a shirtless, blue-jeaned black man sits on something, we can't tell what, whatever he's sitting on is covered by a textile that we can barely see and, and can't quite identify. Sorry, Tyler, I just want to mention that person goes by they. Is in front of a Cuba cloth and is wearing a bag of bird mask from Guinea. And the sitter is presented in multiple exposures. So we we see movement in the picture. There's there's kind of an obvious melange here. Guinea is in West Africa, and it's more than 2,000 miles from where the Cuba kingdom was, which was in Central Africa. Is that mixing incidental or fundamental? It's fundamental. It's very fundamental. I mean, it's it's fundamental because in this project in particular, it's like all of these different kinds of parts being kind of dropped into this bag. There's the, the past is clashing with the present. Maleness and femaleness is kind of blurred. There are many people who, who in, in these photographs are, as I mentioned, the two spirits are, are gender nonconforming or, or may identify as, as non-binary. It is important to me, being that these objects are sourced from so many different places in the world. All the Kuba cloths that are incorporated into the photographs are acquired from a Baldwin's Fashion Institute in Philadelphia. You know, for me, one thing that is really important, remembering and actualizing in the kind of development of the work and the conversation around is that there is this real synergizing of all these objects that have been in different places and have different histories and have different functions that you know that I'm attempting to you know try to bring all together for a bigger meaning or a bigger purpose or for a more wider understanding of what it means for something to be displaced, what it means for something to lose its place in the world, and the necessity of actually creating context for that. An examination of how modernism exacerbated colonialism, really. You know, you're one of a number of artists who are 
investigating or really reinvestigating the moment that modernism, maybe the 25 years or so that modernism really addressed textile and sculpture from Africa? Surely you've noticed that, you know, a number of other artists are doing this. Is it something in the water? Is it part of a broader critical look at colonialism? Do you think that there is a conversation you've had with your peers? I mean, literal conversation, not, not textual conversation that's been part of that. Is there a professor or two professors or book or two books that you think have been important? I guess I'm throwing all this up in the air as a way of asking why now. <laughs> There's been such incredible scholarship over the last you know, decade around African art, but also someone who has been so central to understanding Black art and African sculpture and its role in, in African-Americans' lives and in Black artists' lives, Alain Locke. You know, there's been, a, there's been also this kind of think, real resurgence in the understanding of the importance and the criticality of his work. So I, I think that in some ways I have really informed much of what artists have been thinking in artists' more recent fascination with the African art object, I somewhat feel as though, despite that there being, you know, a number of artists that are investigating this idea of the, you know, the African art object and, and its appropriation, such as Hugh Hayton, for example, incredible artist, I think that it's really also just the fact that it's really just at the perfect time I mean, we're in the tw we're entering the 2020s, and I think that we're entering this point where, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, the Black Arts Movement, and all all of these other movements that have happened within the the, the 20th century are being reassessed in the the 21st century, and I think that we're actually just seeing the genesis of it more than more than anything. So. And of course, you, you also grew up and went to college in Washington, D.C., right down the street from the Baltimore Museum of Art, home to Matisse's 1907 Blue Nude Memory of Biscro, which is maybe not the first, but pretty close to the first and certainly the most influential bringing of African presence and futzing, if you will, into the European tradition. So Blue Nude is certainly referencing the nude of the European tradition, but it's doing it through a painting informed, almost certainly informed, by a photograph or photographs made uh, prostitutes in Algiers that were blue tinted and that members of the French military would send home to their mates in, in France to say, you know, look what I did. And so that kind of moment of cross-cultural and indeed intentional, in Matisse's case, confusion I think continues forward in, in say the work you make or that Matthew Angelo Harrison makes or, 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 or other artists that, that I think is really, really interesting. In the conversation you and Jessica Bell Brown had at the National Gallery that we referenced a little bit earlier, you told her that you wanted the hair of the models in these pictures to be waved, but you didn't tell her why. And so I'd like to know why. <laughs> I, I began working on this project, um, A Sight Long Glance, in 2018 and it's just right off the heels of making the do-rag pictures and you know i was thinking about the relationship between hair and care and uh self-preservation and i just i i always say this to people when i talk about this work is i really didn't know where i would i would go from making you know the do-rag pictures but i knew that i wanted the model's hair to be waved and i wanted to be I know one of the the pictures to have this kind of golder 
warmish tint, especially being that all the other pictures are more kind of cool in tonality. You know, I wanted to, I wanted them to look like they, these were the people that were underneath the do-rag. And these were the people that had kind of emerged from underneath that kind of long time of self-preservation and care. And they emerged beautifully in a way. St- I mean, there's, there's a stylizing. There's a, there's a stylizing that's happening. You know, for me, this relationship of finger waves or, or hair waves, you know, thinking about the evolution of black hair and style. I wanted to wave the hair to, to kind of speak to those kind of like hair politics, you know, in a, in a very kind of simple way, too. I really felt as though, I mean, this is something that I really think is, is it's really true and really, really important for art. I mean, that it's not only that it can tell a story about history, but also that it can actually be used in the present. I look at those pictures, I mean, especially Tet de Femme, you know, I look at that picture I see that the young woman in that picture, I could, I could see her face. I could see that image in the window of, of beauty shops, like walking down the street of Crown Heights, you know, like I could, I could really see that, see that picture there. So for me, that, that is really, is really important is that it's also something that is relevant to the world that I live in when I am not occupying these art spaces or art institutions. So Sorry, what, one of the things that waved hair does in these pictures is catch light in an exquisite way. And so they also feel very much like your obvious delight in playing with light, but also providing surfaces on which for it to land. <laughs> well, you know, there is, a, there is a certain point in those in the pictures, too. There's, there are two works, Untitled Head 1 and Untitled Head 2. So you mentioned Untitled Head 1 and Untitled titled Head 2. Both are rectangular photographs where the top of the sitter's head is facing the camera. And so we see it as an oval. The hair is waved. The light, which is very warm, very kind of yellowish, orangish, is is just, you know, kind of enunciation-like in its warmth. And the oval of the human head fits almost the entire frame. So, sorry, there you go. Those pictures, you know, for me, I mean, the, the richness of, of those pictures, they're kind of poetic reverberation of, you know, looking at the top of the head, the top of the head, almost as this kind of, especially entitled head too, you know, as this kind of landscape. You know, when I was making these pictures in particular, it's the, the way in which the head too, you know, thinking specifically about the head, you know, black people's heads, the, the relationship of the black bodies and black heads to phrenology, you know, in, in, in thinking about those, those kind of forms, right, and in, in, in trying to kind of subvert those, those forms. But, you know, I always thought that when I look at those pictures, I always think of someone being born, you know, how a head looks as it actually is entering the world. To say nothing of the oval egg shape. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, those those pictures to me have, I mean, th- those pictures in particular have a really important significance to in, in trying to kind of, you know, in, in this kind of epic ambition to try to reframe, reframe the human figure. And I imagine it's important to you in both of those pictures that gender is hard to or impossible to identify. Yes. You've talked a good bit, including to the website Fader, about how you're interested in 
not just showing art in the white cube context, the museum or gallery context, but that making work for large public spaces is important to you. Of course, that's traditionally not a site for fine art photography. In, in big public spaces, photography so often has to compete with images and photographs that aren't fine art, you know, billboards and so on. What about showing in large public spaces within a public art context is important to you? That it's a democratizing of the image. You know, there's a there's a democratizing of the image that, that actually happens and in, in taking it out of uh, this more kind of, in quotations, sacred art context. I mean, I think that the, the really fascinating thing, I mean, we've talked about a lot, but I feel like the, the thing that we've talked the least about is photography, like literally. You know, to me, photography is such an exciting medium in, in, in how it just, it can exist in all these different kind of ways in the world, you know. I, I truly do think that photography is the, closest thing that we have and that we've had in the last 100 years, right, as a, or 200 years, as a universal language. I answer these questions for Objective Magazine, a contemporary photography journal, and one of the questions that I ask myself at the end of answering questions for the pieces, what are the ways that we can effectively amplify the power of the image? And, you know, it's from understanding that there are a lot of different ways that photography can be used. And I think that someone who, who has sh who's shown this so beautifully within the evolution of the work and their practice, I think of two great artists, Micheline Thomas and Lorna Simpson, you know, and how they think about photography as a type of, of material and how they use collage and, and how they think about the image as a kind of background to their work, but that background is a foundation. You know, I'm, I'm always asking myself, what is it that photography does that no other medium does? You know, and this question around medium specificity is something that I that I ask myself a lot because I know, you know, you know, I have really good painter friends who ask themselves the same question. You know, what is it that paint does? You know, what what is it that the material of paint does that no other medium does? And I think that medium specificity is just such a it, you know, it's such an underappreciated th thing right now. One of the things I've noticed in the last couple of years is that you're one of a pretty large number of photographers who doesn't just make work on the studio, but makes studio as site evident. So I'm thinking of Micheline Thomas, Paul Ampaji Sapoya, B. Ingrid Olson. I mean, I think you all pretty much, I mean, you and Micheline both went to Yale. Is Is there a common genesis or a conversation amongst you four or more about that, about studio, about site? Well, well I, can, I, can, I can say for myself and the conversations that I've had with McLean and the conversations that I've had with, with Paul, something that I think is so pertinent on each of our practices is that relationships, and we were talking a lot about space and studio, but like relationships, relationships are so important and the relationships with the sitter, the relationship with the subjects. And, and I think that the kind of desire allows the spirit of that relationship to be felt in the space is an important core, is an important core of, of all of our practices. I, I keep thinking about this book, Poetics of Space by Gaston Bachelard. You know, in that book, he talks about how, how we experience domestic space in our growing up 
really shapes our imagination. And when I was young, this is a very personal kind of like story. When I was young, my in my mom's first marriage, I remember coming home one time and all of the furniture in our house had been taken out. What had happened was that um, it's actually a really not so happy story. My stepdad at the time, my mom were separating. And I remember coming home and I had to be eight or nine years old at the time and coming home and opening the door and just seeing emptiness, you know, and, and feeling like we had been, we had been robbed of what we had, you know, that, that someone had stolen all our belongings that like this, you know, you know, all these thoughts were raising to my mind that, that it doesn't really feel like home or a space for a family, I revisit that moment over and over again, because it was a, you know, it was a moment of, I think, like, underlying kind of like devastation, because, you know, I was such a young child at that time. And I hadn't realized that things had gotten that extreme. When I revisit that, that memory, I also think about how, in being a child, right, and returning to that type of setting, and, and how that emptiness can also may have also felt very freeing to me and filled with infinite kind of possibilities of what could transpire in the space. So a criticism that I would often receive about my work when I was in grad school, when I started thinking about no place, right, was there was a lot of criticism about the lack of pictorial space. You know, obviously there's a, there's a large uh, looming history in Yale photography, thinking about space and, and sets and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't until recently that I, that I realized that th- that is something that I, ha- I would do, not as a way, simply as a kind of, you know, stylistic choice, but really, and what it really does is that it allows me to take the subject out of place and out of time. That's how I, I see the, the, the pictures operating very, very often is, especially in the Brooklyn Museum show, there's a kind of, there are color photographs and then there are these like meditative, very kind of like large black white photographs as, as, as well. And we think about how those pictures in a way, or how black and white photography, you know, I think that one of the successes of it is, is how it completely pulls you out of place and out of time. It's a connection that I made over the last year, thinking about space and place and, and traveling so much. And after my first trip to, um, I was just in Ghana Janu- in January. So I was in Ghana for a few weeks. And I think that these, these questions always allow us to, to return to concerns that painters have, especially in, in the time of the, the Renaissance and the, in, in the advent of of the camera obscura, you know, how do you create space and place with a criticality, but also fill that space with something that is is true? That there's a such thing as a, the truth that is completely subjective, and and that truth is our own kind of narrative. I wouldn't say biographical narrative, but our own narrative that we bring into how we think about space and think about relationships and the passage of time within these spaces. All three of us also, um, myself, McLean, Paul, I think we all are people who think very often about production, too, how to work with production. And in that sense, there are some very kind of fundamental questions to be asked is, you know, like, how do I create more space, 
you know, with the, the limitations that I have or, or the limitations of the camera, you know, or the, the limitations that the camera presents in actually thinking about space. How can I expand that? Excellent. John Edmonds, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Ty. Did you know that you can explore the Hammer Museum's exhibitions and programs from the comfort of your home? Watch hundreds of videos from an extraordinary array of programs, from political forums and panels to artist talks and literary readings. Or browse the Hammer's digital archives for images, essays, and research materials related to exhibitions and collections. Visit hammer.ucla.edu for details. Hammer Museum. Free for good. Welcome back. Next up, Tamara Johnson joins me to discuss her installation of Deviled Egg and Okra Column at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. The Nasher is temporarily closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but it has scheduled installations for its new Nasher Windows series of exhibitions. They'll be sited within the Nasher's entrance vestibule on Flora Street in downtown Dallas, so art can be seen from outside the Nasher's Renzo Piano Design Building. Johnson's sculpture goes up on Friday, May 22nd, and will remain on view through Wednesday, May 27th. Johnson is a Dallas-based artist who has previously exhibited her work in a solo exhibition at Q Art Foundation New York in Maria Hernandez Park in Bushwick in partnership with the New York City Parks and Recreation Department, at Wave Hill in the Bronx, and at and in partnership with Socrates Sculpture Park in Long Island City. Along with Trey Burns, she operates the Sweet Pass Sculpture Park in West Dallas, Sweet Pass presents the work of early and mid-career artists in an outdoor setting and on a rotating basis. Like everything else, it's temporarily closed. Tamara Johnson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we talk about Deviled Egg and Okra Column specifically, could you give listeners an idea of where at the Nasher Sculpture Center it will be installed, and as well as you're able to tell us how people will be able to view it? So when you face the entrance of the Nasher, the gift shop is to the left-hand side and the Nasher series, Nasher Windows, which they have started within very quickly the past two weeks, will be on the right-hand side. So it'll be kind of to the right-hand side of the front doors in the front vestibule zone, which, you know, if you're going to the museum any other time, it's kind of just like a breezeway usually they don't have any art pieces in there. It's usually like the sign that says welcome, but it's about eight feet deep and the ceilings around 16, 17 feet high. So, you know, it's a good storefront window size. And it's a Renzo Piano shaded thing, which is um, lovely much of the year. And it's right there on, on Flora Street in, in, in downtown Dallas, about half a block from the DMA. So Deviled Egg and Okra Column is a funny riff on Brancusi's Endless Column. We'll talk about Brancusi in a moment. First, why okra and deviled eggs? You know, I moved back to Texas August of 2018. I had been living in New York since 2012. So I'm seeing my family way more often. My grandma also lives there. So it was just like a lot of it was like a lot of new things for me. It was I was living in a new place. I had a new job. I was teaching sculpture. I still am teaching sculpture at SMU. So, you know, the deviled eggs and the okra kind of started coming into being right when I when I got back to Texas and 
you know, I was thinking about them not only because they're, you know, some of my favorite snacks and they're often witnessed at, you know, any family gathering we have, whether it's like Easter or Super Bowl or just people going over to my mom's house for, you know, a Sunday supper or something. They had these other qualities that were kind of male and female, you know, the okra being like this little penis and the deviled egg being kind of this egg that's cooked and then the yolk is taken out and like reworked and then reinserted back into the void. So I was just thinking about the ways in which I was experiencing these foods and how they kind of have these semi-sexual, semi-sensual qualities, material qualities, you know, just were kind of in my head and on the back burner. And I don't remember, I think it was at my mom's house, I just took an okra and just stuck it in the the gooey part of the deviled egg. And I was like, ah, oh, this is a really good idea for a sculpture. <laughs> so that's kind of where it started out, you know? And I was like, I need to figure out a way to make this rigid. It's kind of like this funny, you know, when you make a fist with your hand and you like put your finger in the hole, you know, that kind of suggests something lewd. So it kind of had that kind of funny quality to me, but it was also this idea of someone penetrating and something being penetrated. I don't know, like it had all these kind of like weird, funny, vulnerable kind of qualities, which is what I'm always looking for when I'm making sculptures. So that's kind of where it started. And then it came to be imagery that was serialized north, south, up, down. So in that moment when I stuck the one in the egg and I was like, yes, there's something like so simple and beautiful about this weird little thing with these finger foods, I was wanting to have them kind of expand beyond that silliness and that naive sensibility. I'm always wanting to make my own version of like the big, robust, male, minimalist, you know, sculptures of the past. Big male minimalism in Texas go a little bit hand in hand. Yeah, the like I want to make my big, you know, phallus sculpture that can just be, you know, shooting straight up into the air. So I was thinking a lot about Broncusi's Endless Column, one of the shows, not one of the last shows, but in my last years of living in New York, MoMA had put together like a selection of Broncusi sculptures that was curated by Paulina Pobaja. So, you know, those kinds of ideas of like the base being the object, the object extending into space and kind of talking about infinity and like truncation and, you know, this idea of like the, the pedestal or the, the non pedestal or the site for these things. So I just was like, I need to, I need to stack these, this one little funny gesture. I need to mirror it and stack it so it can become bigger than the body and bigger than that, like one liner joke. And if I can repeat it and mirror it, into kind of like this infinite gesture. Maybe it can be something that is more serious and more guttural and more about the intimacy of the body in a way that can, you know, go beyond just what the one-to-one objects are. I think once I figured that out, it was just like, as you make sculpture, right? It's the ideas that happen and the play, and then it's like the logistics. Like, how was I going to do this? What materials am I going to use? How am I going to get this thing to stand you know, how is it going to be anchored? And, you know, all the logistical questions started setting in. So the material choices were kind of dictated by that. I've scaled it to fit within the Nasher vestibule. So it, you know, will appear to kind of span the entire space. 
You mentioned Paulina Paboha and her Brancusi show at MoMA in 2018. She was on the podcast to discuss the show back then. We'll have a link to that on, on this week's show page. We've mentioned, or I've mentioned a couple times, how your work is, is very often very funny, and we'll get to more of that later. But before we move on to other work, I have to read a line from a quote of yours from the Nashers press release. So it's normal press release. And, you know, as ever, press releases have quotes from the artist saying, oh, yes, I'm delighted to be showing in the museum and my work is about this and 12 words or less. And your quote about the okra and the deviled eggs is that these items become condensed bullion cubes of material meaning, which struck me as like kind of the perfect press release puncturing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, too, you know, I mean, I know I read so many press releases. I put out so many, you know, so... To have something that is maybe going to kind of glitch, you know, in the reader's brain, it's always something that I'm trying to, you know, think about doing. But, you know, a lot of these pieces that I've been making since I've been back in Texas have been food-centered. I mean, some of my favorite pieces are those beautiful Klaus Oldenburg toasts, you know, with, where he's using the plaster as, like, the spread for the jelly or, you know, peanut butter or whatever. So the bouillon cube too is also something that I always like looked at with like a magical eye when my mom would use it when she was making like gumbo or any kind of like soup or stew or chili or whatever. And I was just like, I don't understand why you have to put that in there. You know, my mom would always describe it in this way that it was like the most intense way to get the fastest results. But I, mean, I was thinking a lot about the column being able to do that. Could I take something and kind of condense it and stretch it out and have it be super dense and potent in like that three seconds of looking at it? You know, it's interesting that you mention Oldenburg's toast sculptures, you know, buttered bread from, from 1961, because it makes me think right away of the James Rosenquist white bread from 64, which is... A, a painter addressing the sculpture through his own medium in a way that addresses his own medium. So Rosenquist's white bread is also very much about the process of making a painting, you know, palette knife on, on, on a gessoed surface, which the white bread obviously is in that painting. And your work quite often winks and chuckles and riffs on art history, but maybe more on painting history than on sculpture history. So this is all a very long way of asking you if that's intentional, if you are trying to take the history of art in two dimensions and finding ways to bring it to three in the way that, say, Henri Matisse was doing in the early 20th century. I think that, you know, when I started as a young child, I mean, you know, you're an artist if you can draw and paint well. So, you know, growing, growing up in Waco, it was like that was what I was kind of taught and what I strove to do my or strive to do. My grandma, you know, painted. So I also, too, wanted to paint. So my mom, being the very supportive mother that she was, put me in art classes, which the first art class I took was a painting class. It was taught by um, Martha McKinney. She taught art classes out of the back room of the gallery in the strip mall where she sold her work. And for the classes, I would come to class and she would say, choose any of my painting and replicate it. And that was the lesson. So my first kind of exposure to art making was 
through painting, through oil painting, and through replication. And I mean, she did still lifes of flowers and landscapes and like, all the traditional stuff. So all that kind of is just like always like my root system. And I, so I always did drawing and painting. It wasn't until I went to UT in Austin wanting to pursue painting. And it wasn't until I took, you know, a 3D foundations class, which at UT at the time, you kind of have to take a little bit of everything at the beginning, and then you can kind of focus on whatever you want. Later on, I had an amazing teacher, Jill Bedgood, sculptor, and you know, it was the first time I was thinking about making art in the three dimension kind of blew my head off. But I have always had this strong, strong, you know, like if I'm thinking about the body, like, you know, half of my body, like an, a big part of my arm and probably a leg is always thinking about painting. I mean, everything I sculpt is also somehow painted. I mean, it might be something that's faux painted or I'm trying to replicate something or, you know, I'm trying to age concrete to look like it's been outside for 20 years but it's like that quality of adding pigment to a surface is something that I always do no matter no matter what the the object is well one great example is a piece you made in New York in 2018 in Bushwick and it's called picnic it's a cast concrete picnic blanket with picnic items on it like paper plates and hot dogs and aluminum cans and and whatnot Luncheons on the grass are a French painting standard from the 19th century, certainly. So that reference is, is immediately there. Are there other painting references that you, you loaded that piece up with? Well, I'm always looking, looking to like Dutch still life. I remember I was in Germany, I don't know, 2015, 16 maybe, and a friend of mine who lives in Berlin, she, we were doing like a whirlwind tour of Berlin. I was there for like two days and we were on bikes and she was taking me to all these museums. And they had, you know, some early Monet paintings, you know, from when he was like in his 20s at this one museum. I don't remember. And there was this beautiful, like the dead fish on the plate. You know, like anytime there's like a Corbet or a Monet, still I have just like a rotten piece of food on a plate. I just love it so much, you know, and it's because it's like, it's symbolic to the time period, but also to an economic scale, like what that person could afford for their family at that time. I'm thinking of Dutch still life. I'm thinking of like this idea of a picnic luncheons on the grass and thinking about how the items on that blanket, even what type of blanket that is all can be signifiers for the size of the group, the demographics of a group, the gender of a group, the age of a group. And at the time I was living in Bushwick, I lived there for the majority of my time in New York. And so the park that that piece was positioned in, Maria Hernandez Park, has a very intense history and has had never had a public art piece there before. And I was working with New York Parks, New York City Parks and Rec Department to host that piece. And it was kind of two years in the works. And I, this is often what I do when I'm positioning works that are going to go outdoors. It's very important for me to kind of understand the place, the culture, the historical relevance, the people who live there. Not so much to be like didactic, to like reflect exactly what the neighborhood is but to kind of understand the nuance of like what happens there, you know, are people happy there? Or are they sad there? Are they, you know, is it dirty or is it clean? Like how do they mow the grass? Like, do they mow the grass? Like, like all those kind of the periphery of living 
so, you know, that picnic was very much about the types of people in the park and the types of items that you would see, you know, which were often coming from the corner bodega. It wasn't about being fancy or luxurious. It was just about like, I don't know, we need to have something to drink and we'll drink Fanta and we'll eat hot dogs and that's just what we're going to do today. There are a couple of great little art history jokes in it though. I mean, the two aluminum soda or beer cans immediately recalled Jasper Johns's Ballantine ale cans and the two liter bottle of Coke reminds me of how painters often just kind of hack off the top third of such a thing and use it for, for washing brushes or holding things in all over a studio. Probably the pieces for which you're best known are the Trumploy swimming pools that you have installed in a couple of grassy parks. We'll have images of a couple on, on manpodcast.com. To me, a native and temporarily a Californian, they immediately recall David Hockney and Hockney's pictures of, of hedonistic Los Angeles and the Hollywood Hills. What other sorts of associations are primary within those works for you? It's not something that I invented. You know, if you grow up in the South, the sight of a pool being filled in is like pretty common because there's such liabilities. And I had seen one that stuck out to me really, really potently. And it was in Florida in Tampa. It was just so perfect. I mean, it was like the grass was overgrown perfectly. The concrete was aged. It was so sad. And at the same time, even though you were looking at it and and it became this very sad, dismal kind of abandoned site, like you could think about it being fun and amazing and wonderful and wet and, you know, the entertainment uh, value that so many pools give. And that just connected with me. I mean, I think that growing up in Texas, you know, central Texas, it's about a seven, eight hour drive to get to the coast. So it's very common for everybody to have a swimming pool. That being said, I mean, that could be anything from like an above ground pool to a fancy in ground pool to a kiddie pool to a slip and slide, you know, like this idea of being outside and being wet to, you know, not have the heat be like killing you, you know, just resonated with me. So when I was living in New York, I just said, well, the history of pools in New York is so different. And I started looking into the history of, you know, the public pools that were built under Robert Moses in the thirties in Brooklyn to kind of like negate crime and create jobs and, you know, promote parks. And so, you know, you see these public pools, you see them in Williamsburg and Astoria and Greenpoint. And so I just kind of like merged this idea of like what I was familiar with and my childhood and this relatable object that could kind of hold, be a holder of both pleasure and, you know, denial with the history of public pools in New York. So it kind of like all swirled together and, Again, it became a question of scale and size and how a rectangular pool is going to denote maybe something that's a little bit more simple versus the the classic California kidney shape, you know, denotes something that's a little bit more higher income level family. So, you know, it was like the landscape and the object kind of having this buzz in my mind. I think there's also a joke within your pools about the inviolability of the picture plane. 
So here in this public sculptural installation, there's a painting joke, which I love. <laughs> so regarding your use of, of humor and winks and nods and references to the canon and art standards, is there a sculptor or two who you think is really funny, who was kind of a model that enabled you not just to be referential, but to be clever and funny in your references? You know, I think as most times when you're first learning about the work of artists at a young age, it's oftentimes a higher percentage of males. So, you know, I was looking at as an early student, you know, Oldenburg and Erwin Worms, one minute sculptures. And, you know, I had the professor, Michael Smith, who when I first saw him perform Baby Icky, I was just like, this is so terrible and wonderful at the same time. I don't know how to feel. So I was looking to, you know, a lot of sculptors, but also performance artists. I mean, later on, you know, when I'm studying sculpture at RISD, I was kind of looking at different people and artists who were thinking about sculpture as kind of like a choreography. So I was looking a lot at like Valley Export. And I mean, her pieces where, you know, she's kind of like bending her body around curbs and staircases. You know, to me, it was this combination of being funny and vulnerable at the same time, you know, which I was also watching like every Buster Keaton film I could get my hands on because it was like this, if it could be sad and funny and you could kind of gently massage the viewer in feeling both of those at the same time, you could kind of hold somebody's attention for a longer moment, you know, which we often see in really amazing dance performances. I was also looking at Carol Leiden's work and Xavier Leroy you know, I was kind of just thinking about how how humor could be not just a one-liner. One of my professors at RISD said, it's actually really hard to make a one-liner that exists longer than one line. You know, it's very easy to make a one-liner. So I'm always kind of like thinking about how to make that humor or that initial kind of like, you know, the slip of the foot on a banana peel. Like what happens after that? Do you keep slipping? Is it repeated? Do you slip and turn a full circle and slip again and it's like a Sisyphean loop? Does it echo out? Does it make waves? Like what are the shapes of the different ways? Like something that is humorous or is initially viewed as funny can kind of like reach beyond into like maybe places that are a little bit more uncomfortable. The artist whose sense of humor I think yours is closest to, for me anyway, is Franz West. Franz West's, you know, he... he enjoys the literalism of the joke. With the adaptables, you are invited literally to hit somebody with something you're not even supposed to touch. And you are expected then to literally hit them. You know, you are inviting people to jump into a pool of water that is a lawn. You know, it, it, there's an alignment there that I enjoy. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, too, I'm thinking of like Baldessari, you know, the piece where he's like throwing the balls in the air, trying to get shapes. I mean, to me, I'm just like the sadness and the attempt of that never working out is just so wonderful. And it just makes me so happy. Failure, denial and failure make me feel really happy. <laughs> Tamara Johnson, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. This was fun. 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.